welcome to the Youth Development Professionals Guidebook. I'm your host, Michael Garcia. And I'm your co-host, Al Ferreira. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another great episode. We are excited to have a friend of mine, Lori Herrick. Lori, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. We're excited to have you. Lori, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, um, I assume that the part that would be probably most interesting to your listeners has to do with the fact that I'm um, a consultant. I started a company uh, in 2002 called Rainmaker Consulting, and it's um, a company that helps not-for-profit organizations raise money and um, do strategic planning and get consulting of all sorts to strengthen their organizations. And so we're here to talk about a culture of philanthropy, not fundraising. That's two totally different things, right? And so, Laura, we're going to start off with that big nut. What should we be doing right now in, the, in February? We're talking to mostly camp professionals, but we have a lot of other listeners. What are some easy steps and, and I guess, mindsets that we have to put ourselves in when we're thinking about the culture of philanthropy as opposed to fundraising? Yeah, so just to distinguish between those two things, I think of fundraising is the thing we do when we don't really um, know the donor. We're just trying to get a lot of people to come on board and give us some money. And we don't really know them well and we're not trying to get to know them really well. We just are grateful to get their money and let it go at that. Um, it turns out that that's not the most effective way to fund your organization, that it's much better to build relationships and get to know people and find out what it is about what you do that is um, important to them and why they would you know, get at, why they would invest their money in your organization. And so, um, so a piece of a culture of philanthropy is that getting to know people and engaging them and asking questions about um, what they like to give to, why they like to give to you, et cetera, and to start to move forward in that trajectory. Um, getting to your answer, I think that um, the thing that we should do now is what we should be doing all the time. And, um, and that is to connect with people and reach out to them. Um, organizations that I know that in the beginning of the pandemic just reached out to people and said, how are you doing over there? And brought them a nice little gift or checked in and you know to see if they needed something. Those folks um, later on when it was time to ask, once there was a little moment to take a breath in the pandemic and say, we, it's time for us to ask. Those folks that had been engaged and communicated to and really loved and you know appreciated, um, those folks were ready to give. And so in an ideal world, you would have been doing that for the last 10 years, right? But if you haven't, that's the thing to start doing now. Um, and if you have been doing it, continue it, just keep going. And, and, and remember that some people and particularly wealthy people are actually doing pretty well in the economy right now. And so uh, it, it means continue to work with them and eventually ask them. Lori, that's, uh, that's fantastic. Uh, I, I want to dive into the word connection because you use that and uh, as communications uh, uh, happen for everybody right now, connection is key. Um, uh, my, my John Maxwell quote for the day is, you know, the uh, heart comes first, you must connect on an emotional level. Uh, which is his law of connection. It, 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 t tell me a little bit about connecting with 
that mindset of, of that culture of, of philanthropy in, you know, what's the deep dive here for connection other than the example you just shared? Well, it's about authentic communication and it's not just in order to get the money. So um, both of you have mentioned mindset and that's a really important distinction of a culture of philanthropy. So when you're trying to make change in an organization, say you wanna to start to have a, an environment where there's a lot of money coming in, right? The tendency is to go toward um, what's the structure we need? Maybe we need a good fundraising plan, or maybe we need a good database to manage our donors, right? These are structural things. Or maybe it's behaviors. We should go ask. Or if only the board would ask, those sort of things, right? Those are behaviors. But the third part of the what we call the wheel of change, it's Robert Gass's um, transformational project, change, it's a tool for change, is to deal with the behaviors, deal with the structures, but also deal with the mindset, the hearts and minds. And so when I make a suggestion, like write an authentic letter, you know, or make an authentic call to a donor, um, it has to be authentic. The mindset has to be authentic. And so doing actions based on what do I need to do to get Al's money isn't really that sincere, right? There's just something in it for me. So a piece of it is um, understanding that the people that are surrounding your organization currently, I'm not talking about new prospects, I'm talking about currently, um, that they, that is trusting that they wanna know more and that they're there because they're committed to the same cause. So how could you partner better? So it's to find out what is it that this person has as a skill set or what they, I'd like to say what they have in abundance, right? So some individuals may have money in abundance and some people may have um, a thing or, you know, access to a warehouse that would be, you know, useful for your organization or an outdoor space that they would um, entertain people in, or there are microbrewers and they would make beer for a, a gathering of, of your supporters. So it's to find out what it is that people bring to the, to the party and then engaging them with that because nobody wants to be treated like their only value is their money. They want to um, feel like they're important to you. And I, I think humans are pretty similar in that. So how do you find those things and engage people and continue to build those relationships? We really are talking about uh, having that mindset of not having a transactional relationship with people, but a transformational relationship with those, which is the work that we do as youth serving development uh, leaders with, 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 with all the folks that we work with. Um, uh, I, I, I know that your organization uh, was founded um, by um, uh, some of the work of Lynn Twist. And, and one of my uh, uh, quotes that I uh, pulled uh, in that was, uh, when we believe there's not enough, then we accept that uh, some will have what they need and some will not. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that, that part of the mindset in connecting with others is, you know, that somehow or another, if I get a piece of the pie, Michael isn't going to get it. Yeah, um, it's, it's a perfect um, metaphor there because what I, I, I remember being in a meeting one time where there were a whole bunch of people that did um, loans to small businesses, micro loans. And, and one of the fellows that was leading the meeting said, we know that it's 
there's a pie and it's a shrinking pie and we're all vultures around that pie. And I, and I, I couldn't believe I was hearing it given that I'd been trained by Lynn Twist and her, her mindset. And what I said was, um, wow, that's really interesting. I think we need to make a bigger pie. And that's the idea is to not just have in mind these mega donors, but to actually recognize that all the people, all the people surrounding your youth organization have skills, money, connections. You know, I, I can tell you story after story. One comes to mind. Somebody said to me, oh, you should invite this woman to come learn about an organization. It's um, actually an alternative educational program for youth in my community. Um, you should invite her to, to give. So I asked her to give and she became a $10 a month monthly donor. And I thought, hmm, okay, there was a big, you know, whoop-de-doo that this person was going to be this big donor. And it didn't really show up that way. And she was lovely. I just engaged her like everybody else, like, let's see, you know, how would you like to be involved? And she got involved in some different things. And at the end of the year, we got a $5,000 check. And I had no idea that was coming. And so it wasn't what I found out was that, um, her dad had said, you're going to get some money when I pass on. And what she did was um, she decided that that was, you know, she'd rather have it now and give it away and that he could be part of the joy of that as well. So he ended up getting involved. And so it's sort of like you never know what people have in abundance. And that's that's an expanding pie. If I had dismissed that person thinking, oh, it's 10 bucks. But it's it's a lot. First of all, 120 bucks is not nothing and then the other thing is is that clearly we all she has so much more to give not just financially but at, at, at every level clearly right. that that uh, folks come to the table uh with with those kinds of gifts i i, I like that uh idea that um uh, you know the father shared with with in the story you told that uh to give her some of the joy of giving as well. Oh. And, and I think that's a, a, a big key component, a connection that we often miss is that invitation to have this joyful moment to support. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that piece of, of connecting with, um, uh, you know, the, the, your, your donors, your, your, your fundraisers, your, your stakeholders? Sure. Yeah. I, I think that, Part of my mindset, and one that I would encourage your listeners to take on, is that people are generous and they want to contribute. And in fact, not inviting them to give, participate, be engaged with your organization is ripping them off. That, that when people are philanthropic, and I, you know, when I use the word philanthropy, I mean love of humankind. I don't mean rich, wealthy, white mega donor. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about generosity. And when people are generous because they care about youth or they care about the arts or they care about the environment or they care about social justice issues, when people are aware of that and cognizant of that, they want to make a difference in it. They want to be able to make change and that's big, you know? And so I think I say, yeah, give them that opportunity. The thing is, is that sometimes people who say what I just said, 
are all about meet somebody and ask them. And that's, you know, if you use the, I, I always use this and some might say it's inappropriate, but I think of the dating metaphor. <laughs> if you decide that you want to date and you decide I'm going to just go meet somebody and then this, you go to your first, you know, meeting and you're a little cat at a little cafe and the person across from you says like, want to go to bed or want to get married or, you know, want to tie the knot, you'd be like, ooh, creep, no. Let's find out if we like each other. Let's find out if we have common values. It's, it's not something that you would, uh, you know, do in normal human society, somehow in fundraising, there's this thought that don't talk to anybody for a year and then ask them for a boatload of money and they'll be ready. It's like that friend that has a truck that you barely talk to, but that every time that you move, you call them, right? You know those, you know those people, yeah. Yeah, it's courting. I mean, that's exactly what you're doing. You're courting yep. this relationship. It's not for a personal relationship, but it's it is what it is. Lori, so Lori and I have been working together for three years and pretty heavily for two years through this specific program. But one of the key takeaway points of the program that I really latched onto was storytelling. So Lori, talk to us a little bit about why it's important uh, for storytelling to happen either from an agency or just you as the person who's that connector? Yeah, it's it's a really big deal. Um, I've come to name them mission moments after um, a woman that I know taught me that, um, who uses it within her organization. When you get in touch with the difference that your organization is making, then number one, for you as an organizational leader, it just makes it all worthwhile right? Just to be present to the story of how somebody's life was going a certain direction and then someone came along, a teacher, a leader, a mentor, and there was a shift in their life's trajectory because they somebody saw something in them and saw some possibility in them. When you hear those stories, one of my pieces of, of advice to not-for-profit leaders and any staff member, frankly, or any board member, is to get a hold of those stories and repeat them. And so if you start to make a habit of first collecting them, and second, sharing them in a structured way, that's a great piece of how you build a culture of philanthropy because what happens is it starts to become the habit. There's an organization that I am on the board of. It's an alternative education program in my community, actually a different one than I was talking about earlier. Um, and, and the executive director, she starts the meetings and says, okay, here's my story. And it might be a hard story about somebody who's having some challenges, or it might be a story about breakthrough, or it could be about, you know, that a certain percentage of the kids all have parents that are incarcerated, you know, like heart wrenching, but yet recognizing that being a part of this program is meaningful. Okay, so what do you do with these stories? So I say, let the executive director use their leadership and spout them out in the beginning of every meeting. Make sure the board member gets that message and is able to do the same thing and start to spread that out within their community and among the people that they know. Um, but the other thing is, is it's also a really key tool for stewardship. And so stewardship is for the part after you've asked and gotten a gift, right? And most people think it's the, just the thank you, but in fact, it's an opportunity to show the person who gave that their investment in you 
was worthwhile. And so if you think about it, if you think of two different organizations, right, and you make your $100 gift to one and you make your $100 gift to the other, and one of them you don't hear from, maybe you get a piece of paper in the mail that says, here's your receipt for 100 bucks. And the other one says, oh my gosh, look at what your $100 did. Which one are you going to go back to next time? Yeah, it's relationships, right? Is that you feel heard, you feel validated, and you're giving, yeah, you're giving your time, talent, and treasure to those 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 organizations. So awesome. So everybody hang out with us a little bit. Uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be back with Lori now. If you're interested in having your voice heard on this podcast, go to youthdevelopmentpro.com and send us an email. All right. Welcome back. Uh, Lori, I want to, I know you've been working on this for quite a while now and you have a book coming out this spring. It's called Choose Abundance. It's an organizational guide to building a culture of philanthropy. Tell yes. us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, first of all, it's it's been about uh, two years in the writing and probably 15 years in the creating. Um, what I've seen is over and over organizations are struggling to get the resources they need to ful fulfill their mission and to really be able to do their work effectively. And we've heard it over and over. A few years ago, a study came out that uh, called Underdeveloped. And it was about how um, organizations are struggling, how development people are staying for an average of about 18 months on how uh, donor retention is abysmal and how development people are kind of out on their own and not getting the support that they need to be able to do their jobs. Board members aren't so engaged and, um, and executive directors in some cases aren't interested in fundraising. They're there for the mission, but not for that. I saw this time and time again in different organizations that they were struggling and the study validated it. And at the end of the study, it said, and what's missing is a culture of philanthropy. And I thought, somebody speak in my language. This is exactly what I've been talking about. So um, what I decided to do was to start to look at what is it that we're doing that's working? It could, because we've had a lot of success working with organizations and we take a different approach to it. Um, and I say we, I'm talking about Rainmaker. Um, what we have noticed is that educating and training one person at a time doesn't have nearly the impact as having a full team of people. So what we're doing is training teams of three to five people um, and sometimes even squeezing in an extra here or there um, that together are all intentionally committing to this culture change and playing a specific role in building a culture of philanthropy within their organizations. So like I said earlier, there are lots of um, there's a lot of focus and there are frankly are a lot of resources out there that are for the purpose of uh, you know, teaching systems and teaching structures to make fundraising work. And there are also a lot of books on how to, but this is addressing the culture, which includes the mindset and rolling out a plan for implementation of this over time. So Lori, you said the team, right? And I, I'm a big supporter of that. It is the having the right people. How would you guide a, we, Al and I know our demographic, we're, we're young camp professionals, we're after school professionals, youth workers. How do you would recommend those people to build that team? Who should be in the room essentially yeah. when that happens? 
So, so the thing is that with every organization, so I want to make clear that while I talk about having, you know, X number of staff, I've worked with organizations that have only one part-time staff person to organizations that have hundreds of people. So there's really a range of sizes of organizations. What matters is I would say, I'm thinking kind of positionally or, or suggesting positionally, you want your top executive leader, right? The person who's the paid person that's most in charge. You want somebody that's a board member, that's a, a you know, somebody who's a volunteer. And if your organization doesn't have a board, say you're just a program director and you're not, and you don't have that, it's probably a good idea to get somebody from the parent organization to be a part of it. I think that's relevant as well. Um, and then a development person, if you have a development person, not every organization does, but very often there's a person that ends up being the point person for fundraising kind of efforts. And so, yeah, that's the, you know, that's the most important three people. Marketing is also really important if you have a marketing person to have them at the table because communications are a key piece of this. Al, you talked about you know communicating and connecting and how you go about doing that. Well, if the, the person that's doing the marketing has one communication strategy and it really tramples on donor relations, that's probably not a good idea. Not to mention that these um, mission moments, these stories could be part of the overall organization's communications, whether again, if you're part of a parent organization or whether in your own newsletter or whatever, it's great to get those things out. Um, but that's the key group is the sort of executive leaders, board leaders, and, and include anybody that's involved with fundraising and, and marketing, especially. Those are the best people to have be part of your team. So you talk a little bit about, you know, moving from that scarcity to abundance mindset. Uh, and, and there's that word again, mindset. And it really is all about, you know, for organizations uh, and programs, having that idea that uh, there's more out there than beats the eye, the unknown that we can really, really build on. Um, and, and there are uh, volunteers and, and uh, youth serving professionals who act as uh, barriers to that. You know, there's always that repetitive cycle of, well, we can't do that, or we tried that. And then when you really dig into it, it's, you realize they tried it 17 years ago uh, in a different context completely, uh, but just because that one word was the same. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, moving people from, uh, from that reservoir attitude to that river attitude? Sure. One thing is they could read my book. <laughs> shameless plugs are always welcome, Laurie. So, <laughs> but I think part of it is starting, I, I love to give this to anybody as an exercise, is to, um, to be a scarcity detective. To start to notice when you hear scarcity. So if I was working, if I wanted to introduce the idea of a culture of philanthropy to a bunch of people who don't know what I'm talking about, I would say, here's the exercise. Spend the next day or a few days or between meetings being a scarcity de detective. Notice where you see scarcity in the world, all over the place, right? And start to just jot it down. Pay special attention to when you hear scarcity in your own head and jot that down. 
and start to notice the degree to which scarcity is running our universe. It's done in marketing. We get several thousand messages a day. I have a quote that says that 3,000 messages a day are put out to tell us that we need more, that we're not enough, et cetera, right? And so you start to, when you start to pay attention, you see it on billboards, you start to see it on the front of magazines and you see it all day long on the internet. You see it on Facebook, you see it on, on LinkedIn, everywhere. Actually, maybe LinkedIn doesn't have advertisements. So, but you see it anywhere that there's any kind of advertising, you see this message that you should be buying something. So when you, so part of what you do when you start to notice the scarcity and say your team comes back together, your board members come back together and say, yeah, I came up with all these different things. You start to then notice, well, where do we use scarcity language in our fundraising effort? Do we think we know people that have money? Do people all raise their hands when you say, do you know anybody who would maybe want to give? First of all, the question comes from a place of scarcity because it seems that people's value is only in their money, right? So how do you start to generate a different conversation? So culture is sneaky. We can't always see it until we're intentionally trying to pay attention to it. So what I like to do is have people be intentional about seeing it and pay it, you know, put it on their radar. And then, and only then, frankly, can you start to flip it and start to think a little bit differently. And it's not just Pollyanna, it's actually about culture. And it's about the degree to which the naysayers, as you were referring to there, Al, that say, oh, we tried that, shut down possibility for you. That's what's important about it. So we've talked a little bit about the scarcity language. Here's the thing it's hidden to us and we don't always, we can't always see it. But as I've heard, um, a, there's a quote from Steve Gruner and Todd Whitaker that says this, the culture of any organization is shaped by the worst behaviors the leaders are willing to tolerate. So if you're running an organization and you're allowing, and I, I would say most of us have been in an environment like this where it's toxic, it's very often that the leader is allowing really bad behavior to prevail. And so if you're committed to a culture of philanthropy and uh, a different mindset, one that is more abundance and possibility filled, then you need to be elevating that part of conversation, those conversations and those individuals who are speaking to something that is better and more, you know, enlightened, if you will, um, and and not really uh, um, allow the naysayers to shut down any sorts of possibility. I agree 100%, and that's that can be a challenge sometimes, especially what your role is in that organization as you're feeling that negativity on top. I think one of the suggestions I would make and and jump in either one of you is just to focus on what you can do and what you can control, right? There's that Charles Swindoll, we're all quoting today. So there's that Charles Swindoll quote, it's, you know, or 10% what happens to me and 90% how I act to react to it. And that's a huge part of what we're talking about is you have to be able to control what you can. And if you think fundraising or developing this culture of philanthropy is for your organization now, and you're feeling this from above and you're not getting the support, I'm not going to tell you not to move ahead, but I'm going to tell you to think about your resources and your mental health resources. And is this the right time? And maybe there's a change down the road that might be coming that will be more open to that. So definitely. 
Yeah. We're kind of wrapping up here. I want to, you know, tell us a little bit, tell people how can they get a hold of you, you know, sure. end with a bang. What's, sure. you know, we'll have, we'll definitely have Rainmaker's website in the, in the notes of the, um, of the podcast. And if you're okay with it, I would love to, when the book comes out, let me know and we'll share it across all of our social media for Youth Development Pro. Oh, that would be great. Thank you so much. Yeah. So it's Lori at rainmkr.com. Um, and if I can give my shameless plug, I would say this, which is that um, the we're, we're in the spring launching a program called Sculpt. And Sculpt is for teams of people. And it doesn't matter. You need to have a minimum of three people, but you don't pay per person. You pay per team. And it's a seven-month program where we help you to create your plan for building a culture of philanthropy that's very specific to your organization. And then there are three intensives where we'll get together and have peer learning. And of course, at this time, it'll be online learning. It won't be mean any traveling. So it means that anyone anywhere could, um, could be involved and could learn more about it. And so it's on our website um, and you can check it out. It's called Sculpt. And, uh, and I really just want to thank both of you for your time and for, um, you know, allowing me to share about my book and share about a culture of philanthropy. And um, I hope that uh, it's useful to the folks that are listening today. So when we named the company, when I named the company Rainmaker, first of all, I didn't know about that movie at that time. However, I knew that I wanted our company to be about planting seeds, about growth, and we wanted it to be generative. And when we talk about um, scarcity language, we look at the kind of polar opposite of that is being generative and creating something out of nothing or really watering and nurturing. And we talked earlier about stewardship and a big piece of stewardship is about building relationships and, um, and really watering the plant, if you will. Uh, one of the people that went through one of my courses talks about um, the orchid and how one of his donors um, came to him at a very poignant time in his um, life and said, I need to tell you that I have learned recently that I'm dying and I have a request of you of something that you take on. And and he said, of course. And he was, of course, taken back that he was being told this by this individual. And he said, I have a request that you give an orchid to my wife every year on her birthday. And he was really moved. And he said, of course, you know, I, I'd be happy to. And then he paused for a moment. He said, could you tell me what the significance is of the orchid? And he said, well, orchids require that you pay attention to them. And they're kind of like donors, as a matter of fact. And you don't have one. You're a you're a fundraiser, and you don't have one of these. You should probably get yourself one. And he said, "Okay, you know why?" And he said, "Because you have to pay attention to an orchid. You have to pay attention to when it's dry, and you need to give it water. And at a certain time, all the flowers will fall off, and you think it's dead, but it's not. And you have to keep taking care of it, and you have to keep watering it." And if you keep doing that, it'll come back. And it's very similar to how we need to treat our donors. We need to pay attention to them. We need to listen to them. We need to look at them. 
and and we need to do what it takes to nurture them so that they want to be a greater part of our organizations. And um, as a result of that story, I have two orchids in front of me. And it's something that I use as a metaphor for the caring that we need to give to the people that are around us. So not just our major donors, but everyone around us. And that that brings us to another place. And to me, that's generative. That's about growing things. And that's about rain making and, and really building that kind of culture of philanthropy. Thank you, Lori, again, for joining us. We are excited to have you and can't wait to read the book. Maybe we can get an autographed copy or something. And then uh, um, sure. hang out with us. Uh, Al and I will be right back after this commercial. Hi, everybody. This is Michael Garcia, and I am here to talk to you about Youth Mental Health First Aid. This course is designed to teach neighbors, teachers, parents, peers, and caring citizens how to help a youth or teen who is experiencing a mental health or substance abuse challenge or crisis. The course discusses mental health challenges for youth, reviews typical adolescent development, and provides guidance through the ALGE Action Plan for both crisis, non-crisis situations. Topics covered in the manual include anxiety, depression, substance abuse disorders in which psychosis may occur, disruptive behaviors, disorders, including ADHD and eating disorders are covered as well. If you're interested, go to youthdevelopmentpro.com and sign up for our next course. That was a great, great segment with my friend, Lori. Um, I just really love hanging out with her and, and working with her over the past three years. So uh, Al, tell me what you learned today. You know, uh, ultimately, it's that uh, scarcity versus abundance mindset. And that uh, she talked about, I love that her book is Choose Abundance. Uh, I love the fact that she said, you know, culture is sneaky. Uh, and then she talked about, uh, you know, the, the, as leaders, the worst behaviors that we tolerate uh, end up being the ones, the, the identity of your organization. Uh, you know, it, and that to me is John Maxwell's number one law of leadership is the law of the lid. Your leadership is like a lid or a ceiling on your organization. So if you're tolerating this kind of behavior, let's say on a scale of one to 10 and, you, and you're tolerating four level behavior, uh, then your organization is never going to rise higher than a four uh, because that's where you are as a leader. And that's exactly what she's describing here in choosing abundance. So uh, I, I can't I can't wait to 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 read her book. Yeah, I you pulled the exact quote I was going to say about the worst behavior. I think that's really important. Leadership is is huge, and if you're being held back from that, it just becomes that much more difficult to follow. And uh, yeah, so. Thanks again. This is a, a great episode. Thanks, everybody. We will see you in a couple of weeks and have a great day. Bye-bye.